Last year, we were richly blessed at this Sunday morning worship service with a substitute preacher who uh, gave us a message that exceeded anything that we could have possibly heard from the original intended speaker. Uh, it was an inspiration to all to have heard this man, and we're just thrilled and delighted that we could have him back with us again this morning, Dr. Calvin Thielman, who is from Montreat College here, the chaplain of Montreat College, and also the pastor of the Montreat Presbyterian Church. Without further ado, Dr. Thielman. I want to express my appreciation to you for your kindness in asking me to come back again. Let me ask you, how many of you were here last year at this uh, meeting? Would you? Thank you. I'm going to change my sermon a little bit. <laughs> I just felt led to change my sermon. <laughs> Instead of reading the passage of Scripture that's uh, there in your bulletin, I want to read a different passage of Scripture that will highlight the same important theme which will help us to arrive at a definition of what is a Christian. And I will broaden the theme to, to say that I'm going to talk to you in these minutes about the Christian faith and mental health. I think this is something that all of us can use and that will be uh, of some help to you. Let me first of all let St. Paul himself give you his testimony. He is in the presence of King Agrippa. He is in the presence uh, of Festus, who is the... Uh, leading Roman ruler in the area where he is at this time. He is a prisoner, he is in chains, and there are many people in the court who are standing around. Now, I've often wondered what big Presbyterian preachers would say under such circumstances, but nothing has ever affected me like what Paul said. Uh, he is telling uh, about his conversion. Let me begin reading from Acts chapter 26. Once your majesty... On my way to Damascus on this business, that is the business of destroying the Christians, armed with full authority and the commission of the chief priests, at midday I saw a light from heaven far brighter than the sun blazing about me and my fellow travelers. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is not easy for you to kick against your own conscience. Who are you, Lord, I said. And the Lord said to me, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and stand on your feet, for I have shown myself to you for a reason. You are chosen to be my servant and a witness of what you have seen of me today and of other visions of myself which I will give you. I will keep you safe both from your own people and from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. I send you to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of God, from the power of Satan to God himself, so that they may know forgiveness of their sins and take their place with all who are made holy by their faith in me. After that, King Agrippa, I could not disobey the heavenly vision, but both in Damascus and in Jerusalem and through the whole of Judea and to the Gentiles, I preached that men should repent and turn to God and live lives to prove their change of heart. This is why the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have received help from God himself, and I stand here as a witness to high and low, adding nothing to what the prophets and Moses foretold should take place. That is, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first to rise from the dead, 
and so proclaim the message of light both to our people and to the Gentiles. While Paul was thus defending himself, Festus burst out, You are raving, Paul. All your learning has driven you mad. But Paul replied, I am not mad, Your Excellency. I speak nothing but the sober truth. The king knows of these matters, and I can speak freely before him. I cannot believe that any of these matters has escaped his notice, for it has been no hole in the corner business. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe them. Much more of this, Paul, returned Agrippa, and you will be making a Christian out of me. Ah, replied Paul, whether it means much more or only a little, I would to God that you and all who hear me this day might stand where I stand, but without these chains. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank thee for this important passage of Scripture. Now, in these minutes in which we have to think about two important themes, we pray for the Holy Spirit to guide our thinking and enable us to come to some clearer insights that will result in a deeper uh, commitment of our lives to Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. Now then, I said I would talk about mental health, and I said I would talk about what is a Christian. Let me talk a little bit about uh, mental health. All of us know that we live in a day of great anxiety. All of us know about the different symptoms of anxiety which crop up in our own minds and with our own families and which we see uh, in the newsreels and in the newspapers day by day. Someone told me recently of one person who was so uh, confused that she went into a religious bookstore and said, I want a copy of that book, Give Me a Piece of Your Mind, by Rabbi Norman Vincent Sheen. <laughs> so, so everyone today agrees that there is a, a great deal of anxiety that's floating about. Now then, if you ask a hundred different psychiatrists what is mental health, you would probably get a, a hundred different answers. But I have a very good friend who is a psychiatrist with whom I've worked for about 10 years. And uh, uh, I love this man very much. He's uh, an Asheville psychiatrist. He's my hunting and fishing buddy. I would like to be like Paul, and I'd like for him to be like Luke. Luke was a doctor. And uh, we worked together. And uh, the reason I'm laughing is that uh, there's a famous story that uh, once the psychiatrist was, had his teenage boy, and he was loading an old couch that they had in their house into the back of the family station wagon to give it to the Salvation Army's Goodwill Industries. And he had a very cynical neighbor who screamed over the hedge and said, where are you going, to make a house call? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, if, you ask, um, if you ask most psychiatrists what constitutes good mental health, they'll tell you this. They'll say that a person in order to have good mental health should, number one, have a good estimate of his own value or worth. Now remember that. Number one, he should have a good estimate of his own value of worth. Number two, he should be able to give and to receive love comfortably. And number three, he should have a goal or a purpose in life. Now if any one of these three is missing, this person is in trouble. If he hates himself, he will try to destroy himself with suicide, or he will strike out with hostility toward other people. The mental health people have a slogan that troublesome people are people in trouble. 
And we found that to be true, those of us who have to work day after day with large groups of people and with individuals. People, uh, troublesome people are people in trouble. We must have good self-esteem. Uh, now then, what are some of the things that work against our self-esteem? Well, first of all, we, we feel guilty about a great many things. Sometimes guilt, uh, we ought to feel guilty because we are guilty, and then sometimes we have a neurotic form of guilt. I run into this with a lot of, of reasonably good Christian people who have a, a perverted conception of, of, of guilt, and they feel very guilty about things that are really not sins and uh, which have no support or foundation in Scripture. And then there are a great many things that make us feel guilty in the society in which we live. Your television set is a great guilt producer. You watch old mom with her bifocals on and her 140-pound <coughs> weight looking in the TV screen at one of these what-have-you-got-to-lose ads, uh, <laughs> and she begins to feel guilty that she doesn't look like a gorgeous Hollywood model. Now, this doesn't mean that mom shouldn't uh, try to drink a little more Metrical or lose a little weight, uh, but what this often does is uh, puts a realistic amount of competition. Watch those ads. They are great guilt producers. If you see uh, an ad that uh, is advertising soap, for instance, here are two gorgeous models who represent the average American housewife talking about the uh, uh, soap over the backyard fence. And if you look at this average American house, it costs about $80,000. And there's a great lawn with huge old oak trees. And if the camera goes around in front, here's a station wagon for family trips and a Cadillac for dad and a sports car for the children. And this average American ad, see? And then you come inside and you see another fifty or $60,000 in furnishings on the inside of the house. Now, the average American doesn't live like that. But the average American probably works in a steel mill up in Pittsburgh or in Birmingham. And he sits there in his union suit with egg on his face, staring in the television set. And he gets the idea that he is not average. And it begins to make him feel guilty. Why can't he have all this stuff? And guilt and hostility go hand in hand. And so we get a lot of riots going right now. And then television raises our children. Television is the third parent. Uh, television took the place of grandma uh, and, uh, and raises our children. So you get a distorted attitude toward sex. You get a distorted attitude toward materialism that fills us full of guilt. And this type of guilt, of course, is a neurotic, uh, often a neurotic guilt. I remember reading a little poem about a, uh, uh, how did it, a little poem called Scruples, I believe was the name of it. And it said, once in a saintly passion, I cried in anguished grief, O oh Lord, my soul is black with sin, of sinners I am chief. Then stooped my guardian angel and whispered from behind, Vanity, my little man, you're nothing of the kind. Uh, well, there are people who have this kind of guilt, which is a sick guilt. Uh, it's imaginary. And uh, uh, when we have sought the forgiveness of God through the atonement which Christ has and we have surrendered our lives to him, then we ought to recognize what we have done, accept his forgiveness, and, and be thankful for it, and forget that thing. Uh, when God forgives our sins, he, he says, as one old Dutch commentator put it, he puts up a sign that says uh, he drowns our sins in the depths of the sea, and he puts up a sign that says no fishing allowed. Uh, you are forgiven, and you accept the forgiveness. Now, there is another kind of guilt, uh, which is a very realistic guilt. 
this is when we really are guilty. And sometimes we use the psychiatrist as a sort of priest that we go to to confess our sins. And my psychiatrist friend told me, he said, a great many of my patients don't need me at all. What they need is God. They come to me and they, they begin to relate some misconduct of theirs and they hope that I will delve into their background and find an excuse for them so that they can go right back out and do the same thing again. And in his blunt layman's language, he said, the trouble with them is that they sin too much. Isn't that something? That came from a psychiatrist. But, and so he is pointing out that uh, often we are guilty because we are guilty. And there's no need to excuse it. God cannot forgive an excuse. God forgives sins. So don't try to make an excuse for it. Confess it and seek his forgiveness and seek a new life. Repentance means turned around, going in another direction. It means a new mind, a new way of thinking. And this is very, very important uh, to good mental uh, health. Uh, Anna Russell is a comedian over in Great Britain. And she has a little song. It says, I, I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed, to find out why I killed the cat and blacked my wifey's eyes. He laid me on his downy couch to see what he could find, and this is what he dredged up from my subconscious mind. When I was one, my mommy hid my dolly in a trunk, and so it follows naturally that I am always drunk. When I was two, I suffered from ambivalence toward my brothers, and so it follows naturally I poisoned all my lovers. And then it goes on with several more stanzas, and it says, Now I'm so glad that I have learned the lessons this has taught, that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. <laughs> now this is what a lot of us try to do, and this is not good mental health, this is sick. Um, so then one of the reasons for our low self-esteem has to do with guilt and hostility which rage around after each other. Now then, what is the Christian's reply to this? The Christian's reply is that if I am redeemed by the blood of Christ,